Now let's turn in our Bible to the book of Colossians, or Colossians chapter 1. And we're just going to read from verse 9 through to 12. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 9 through to 12. And we're reading, of course, Paul's prayer, or one of them, for the church at Colossae. This has been our study for a number of weeks. Let's hear the word of God. If you have your Bible there and you found the place, then follow the reading. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, as we continue our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians, I want to turn your attention to another spiritual matter that the Apostle Paul prayed regarding the church at Colossae. Namely, he prayed that they might increase in the knowledge of God. My text, therefore, is Colossians 1 verse 10, the latter part of the verse, and it reads as follows, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's the theme, praying to increase in the knowledge of God. Now remember, I've told you in the past, Paul is praying big spiritual prayers for the people of God at Colossae. And Paul's prayers, spiritual as they are, are very unique. And here's one of them recorded in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Now I've repeated that, and I trust that you've grasped that, and you've laid hold upon that truth, that this is a unique spiritual prayer. Now, this was Paul's desire and Paul's goal for the whole church at Colossae. Remember, he's in prison. Epaphras has come and told him about the situation, what's happening in Colossae, and immediately Epaphras and Paul and the company with him, Timotheus included, gave themselves to prayer. But not only did these apostles pray and the pastor pray for the church, but I believe that this is what the Lord Jesus wanted for the church at Colossae. And for his church everywhere. You see, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is using the Apostle Paul to inform us of his mind and his desire and his goal for the church. And you see, this true prayer for God's people, what does it involve? It involves being filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. That was the first thing that we talked about. Then we uh, mentioned the need to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That was the second thing. Here was the third item, being fruitful in every good work. And we had that sermon two weeks ago. It's online. Please listen again to it if you desire. Now here's the fourth thing that he prays about. And what does he say? 
and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here is part of what the knowledge of his will entails. Here's a part of what that worthy walk looks like. Here's a part of being fruitful in every good work. It's to have a desire, a consuming passion, to increase in the knowledge of God. Now, if you listen to certain preachers today on the television, on the radio, or especially on the God channel, I have to say that you're going to find it hard to hear a message filled with the true gospel of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because basically, many preachers, in their address, in their sermon, in their message, it's a message of activity. They're telling you, do this and do that. So they're giving you ten principles for a happy marriage. Five steps to ultimate happiness. Ten things or four things in order to be a good parent. You see... It's all about activity. But not one of these preachers seem to understand that before you can do anything, you have to know. And before you can do something for God, you have to know God. Surely that's basic. At the heart of any activity, at the heart of any work for God, is the knowledge of God. For example, suppose you've got an electric problem at home or work. And somebody comes to fix it. And then they tell you, well, I know nothing about electricity. I have never studied it. I'm not qualified. I don't have any um, certificates to show you. Would you let that man change a plug in your house? Or suppose a plumber was sent for and you've got a serious leak and the man comes out and he tells you, but, but I'm not qualified. I, I know nothing about plumbing. Or... or would a school board allow someone to teach maths and English who tells them up front, but I've got no teaching degree, I've got no teaching experience? No. Knowledge is the key. A knowledge of electricity and electrical work, a knowledge of plumbing, knowledge of teaching. You see, that's the key. Before they can do anything, they have to have this knowledge. And what is true in these areas that I've mentioned has to be true in the area of the Christian life. Before you can engage in activity, before you can do anything for God, you need to know God. Knowledge is the key. Now, the word knowing is used 169 times in the Bible, four of them in the book of Colossians. And here's the second time in this prayer he uses the word knowledge. He started off praying and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And here it is again in verse 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, every true born-again believer is not only to know God, and that's fundamental, and we'll deal with that in a moment, but that individual is also to increase in that knowledge. Now, let me be brutally honest today. One of our problems, while we know something of God initially when it comes to salvation and redemption, we often fail to increase in the knowledge of God. That is one big problem 
facing the church of Jesus Christ today. And I put myself in the front line. I add in a race of other preachers. I include the elders of the church and the deacons. Before we go down the line to individual members and adherents in the church, we often fail in our own lives to increase in the knowledge of God. And you see, as we think of our society, as we're going to learn when we think about the centenary of Northern Ireland, one of the things that's marked by way of absence in our country today, and I'm going to say this, is the marked absence of the knowledge of God. And if you turn over there to the book of Hosea, and look with me at Hosea chapter 4, it says in verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Why? Because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn. There's a marked absence of the knowledge of God. Now that's what we're thinking about. And Paul is well aware. The church at Colossae, this is one of the big prayers for the church that it needs. It needs to increase in the knowledge of God. It's great to know God, but we must endeavor to increase in the knowledge of God. So that's what we're thinking about today. Four things. The knowledge of God must be the greatest priority in the life of a Christian. That's the first thing. Young people, what's the greatest knowledge in the world that you can ever possess in your mind? I want to tell you it's not knowledge about how electricity works. It's not knowledge about plumbing. It's not even knowledge about cars. It's not even having a PhD or a number of them and you can stand up and be heralded and lauded as the world's smartest and the greatest man. And there are some people like that in our society. But I want to tell you, now listen to me carefully, the greatest knowledge in the world that you can possess is the knowledge of God. I've got some books in the Porta Cabin written by John Calvin, Two of those books is called The Institutes of Christian Religion. And John Calvin sets out, who was probably the greatest theologian, probably since Paul and Augustine's day, John Calvin sets out in his institute, in the opening parts, the opening chapters, that the greatest knowledge of the, in the world is the knowledge of God. And that's why the Bible starts in the beginning God. See, the Bible introduces us to God. And if I was to take the word God, Elohim, and put it up on the screen, if it were possible, and you would see it in the Hebrew language, you would see under one of those letters is a little thing that we'll describe as a wishbone. It's called the nathna. It's a main pause in the Hebrew language. And the, the Hebrew writer, the Hebrew reader, he, he, he would begin to read the word, and then he would pause to think and meditate and reflect. 
in the beginning God. Who is he? What's he like? What's he doing? You see, the knowledge of God, as I've said, must be the greatest priority in the life of the Christian. And there's a priority to possess an initial knowledge of God. In John 17 and verse 3, in his prayer, high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus said, And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And if you're a genuine true believer today and genuinely converted and got a testimony to the saving and keeping power of Christ, then through the new birth, through receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, you've already got an initial knowledge of God. And it's a true knowledge of God. And it's a genuine knowledge of God. So you've begun on a spiritual journey. And, and, and you now have an initial knowledge of God. So let me press home this. I want to ask if you're born again. Was there a time in your life when you received Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you started out in this spiritual journey? Have you got a testimony to the saving and keeping power of God? If you have, you already possess what I'm calling an initial knowledge of God. But the priority is not just to have that initial knowledge of God. The priority here is to increase in the knowledge of God. And that's what Paul is praying about. He knows they're Christians. He knows they're already born again. He knows they have some semblance or knowledge of who God is and what he's like. And we'll come back to that. But he's prioritizing in his prayer that they might increase in the knowledge of God. You see, the true Christian, he's to follow on to know the Lord. Not just initially, but listen to me carefully, intimately, deeply, in a greater and in a better way. And if I remember right, in a number of sermons, we looked at Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. And we dealt with that very theme, knowing God in a deeper, greater, and in a better way. And that ought to be the desire of every true child of God. And this is not just young people ahead knowledge. This is more than just an intellectual knowledge about God. It's, it's knowing God deeply and intimately in a real meaningful way. You see the word knowledge here that's mentioned for the second time in Colossians? It means discernible recognition. Remember why Paul wrote this epistle? Why he prayed this prayer for them in the very first place? He was battling heresy in Colossae. Part of that heresy had to do with the Gnostic heresy. And the Gnostics, they were involved in possessing, or at least they claimed to possess, a, a special accumulated knowledge, a secret knowledge, secret information. We'd love to share this secret information to you. But we can't share it unless you join our group, unless you become part of us. But it was only information. It was only empty words. This accumulated knowledge had no deep impact upon their daily life. In fact, it filled their hearts and minds with pride. They felt we're better than others. We're, we're part of a secret society, secret sect. But this is what true knowledge does. True knowledge involves discernible recognition so that it leads to a change in lifestyle and behavior, so that it impacts upon our right living. And many professing Christians, I put myself in the front line, we live so shallow lives. 
Why do we live so shallow lives? Why are we so cold and careless and carnal in so many areas? Is the failure attributed to this fact that we haven't made it a priority to increase in the knowledge of God? You see, I told you about the book. I I can't mention the name of the lady that uh, bought me the book for Christmas, but it's been a blessing. Pray big. And, And I was challenged as I read the book. When did I pray, Lord, help me to know you better, deeply, greater? Now, I challenge you. We all struggle with prayer, ignorance and infirmity. What do I pray about? Now, now it's, it's good that we pray for those that have been bereaved. It's good that we pray for the sick. It's good that we pray for other individuals. But do we pray spiritually for ourselves that we might know God? See, the knowledge of God must be prayed about. It must be sought after. We must draw near to the Lord every day. If we want to increase in the knowledge of God, we must also daily search the scriptures. We must pray. We must learn to fill our hearts and minds with who God is and what he's like and what he's done. It's not my ideas. It's not my feelings. It's not my thoughts that really count. It's, it's taking on board the full orb revelation of himself in the book. God is creator and maker. God is self-existent. God is transcendent. God is absolutely sovereign when it comes to salvation over his creatures, over time, events, and history. God is good. God is thrice holy. Oh, we have little cognizance of the holiness of God. God is so gracious and faithful. God is infinitely just. God's a God of wrath. God to be feared. God's a God of love. God and Father for Lord Jesus Christ. You see, The Trinity's involved. And if you think of this prayer, it's a Trinitarian prayer. If you go back, I I didn't read it. I should have read it this morning. I apologize. Colossians chapter 1. And if you look with me, it it says there in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Do you see the connection? You see, the prayer is Trinitarian in nature. The the prayer arises out of this full-orb revelation of God himself in the Holy Scriptures. He's praying to the living and the true God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this as well this morning. This is a lifelong adventure, young people. This is only the start of the journey. Initially knowing God. Being brought into a right relationship with him. And then increasing in that knowledge. This is not a, a crash course that's one off and you can bank that and say, I've got that done. It's wonderful to know God initially. But we must not fail to increase in that knowledge. Now let's be honest. And I have searched my heart this week. We know so little. And yet the truth is we can know as much as we want to know. Because the knowledge of God is inexhaustible. The knowledge of God is really incomprehensible in a true sense. And yet this incomprehensible God has revealed something about himself so we can know him. We, we live in the shallows. It's like going down to Port Rush there and thinking, you know, I'd love to go swimming in the sea. I, I wouldn't because I would drown. I, I would just go down to the bottom like a stone. I can't swim. But anyway, if you could swim and wanted to, It's like paddling 
wetting your feet along the seashore or maybe getting into the knees. And there's a difference between just getting your feet wet and getting into the knees and actually having waters to swim in. And oh, that we could see that this is the greatest priority in the world. The greatest knowledge in the world is the knowledge of God. And this knowledge of God will have a a practical impact in our lives because this knowledge of God will make us more and more like him. It will transform us. The truth about God as he's revealed himself must change us, must transform our lifestyle. Isn't this what Paul emphasized when he said there in 2 Corinthians in chapter 3 and in the verse 18, he made this statement, listen to the word of God, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, the knowledge of God will change us. It will deepen our walk with God. It will deepen our life before the Lord. Therefore, it's not intellectual knowledge. It's not mere information. It's true experimental knowledge. And we know God even in the trials and difficulties of life. So I I press home this before we move on very quickly. How much more do we know since the day we got saved of the holiness of God? How much more do we know of the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation? The absolute sovereignty of God over our whole lives, over the whole of the universe? How much more do we know that he is the omnipresent one? The one who says, lo, I am with you always. Do we live in the consciousness of that? That the Lord's by our side, by our hand? That the Lord is with us in the journey? How much are we overcome and awed with the fact that he's all-powerful? That he's all-seeing? That he's all-knowing? That he's the eternal one, the unchangeable one, the the ever-gracious, loving one? If you want another prayer in the Bible to read, you can read it there in Psalm 86. And the psalmist, of course, was always taken up with the knowledge of God. This is what he said, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion. Psalm 86, 15. And gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. He went on to say in Psalm 130 and verses 4 and 5, that there's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. You see, God's a forgiving God, but he's also a God to be feared. He's revealed as the God and Father for Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son, the, the eternally only begotten Son of the everlasting Father. He's God incarnate. And yet, when we think of God with us, how does that impact upon us? See, it's not just intellectual. It's not just for information. It has to be experimental. It must have an impact on our lives. It must make us better husbands, better wives, better parents, better children, better workers, better worshippers, better citizens. See, the knowledge of God must be the greatest priority in the Christian life. Let me tell you something else very quickly. The knowledge of God must be the greatest progress in the Christian life. I don't believe that the true born-again Christian can ever stand or sit still or be idle in this particular matter of the knowledge of the Lord. There has to be progress. There has to be a going on. Hosea 6 and 3 tells us, follow on to know the Lord. There has to be advance. 
Now, of course, we're not going to progress on empty, but because we've got the initial knowledge of God and we have this desire, making it a priority to increase in the knowledge of God, then that desire will cause us to make progress. If you take Stephen here, if I use him for an example, let's say he's riding his bicycle up the Oakley Hill. Well, if he gets halfway up and stops pedaling, well, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to start coming back. You see, once you stop on a hill riding a bicycle, then you start going back. And, and you see, that's what the Christian life is like. It's, it's almost like riding a bicycle up a hill. And you're having to keep pedaling, keep going. Because once you stop, then you start to backslide. You start to go cold. You start to go careless. You start to become carnal. And that's seen in your conversation. That's seen in your conduct. And that's why Hosea 6 and 3 says, follow on to know the Lord. And if we don't, we're going to stagnate. Someone has rightly said the true child of God is either advancing and growing in the knowledge of God and making progress or the child of God is declining and going back. See, there has to be a pressing on. There has to be progress in this area. Hence the prayer. These believers already knew the Lord. But he just doesn't pray that they might know thee. He prays that they might increase. And it's in the knowledge of God. I want you to see that. The true church of Jesus Christ, therefore, can't be content with numbers. It can't be content with money. It can't be content with its program. It can't be content with activity. That must not be the mindset. What is the mindset? It has to be the knowledge of him. And I want to say this is more than just a subject. This is, young people, the greatest subject in the world. This is not just about information or intellectual stuff. This is more than that. This is more than even having a a Bible knowledge. Because this is relational. This is about enjoying and having communion and fellowship with God. If you turn over there to John chapter 10 and in the verse uh, 14, the Lord Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and no one of mine. Verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Here's a parallel. He knows them, and they know him. The shepherd has a knowledge of his sheep. He knows their names. He knows their need. He knows their nature. And he parallels that to this relationship that he has between himself and his heavenly father. And and this is a deeper and a better and a greater knowledge of relationship. See, this knowledge of God is at heart, as I'm trying to tell you, it's relational. And that's at the heart of making progress. I'm in a relationship with God. I'm getting to know him deeper and better and greater than I ever did. And while every true believer knows God initially in this uh, new covenant relationship, he makes progress in this area. Remember what Jeremiah the prophet says in Jeremiah uh, chapter uh, 31. He says this in verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant 
they break, though I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I put my laws in their inward parts and write in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. No, no one's excluded. All whose sins are forgiven, who've been brought into a right relationship with God, that relationship forms the basis of fellowship and communion with the Lord. Can you think of the Almighty, the living and the true God, condescending to have fellowship with us, condescending to have communion with us because we're in a relationship? He knows my name. He knows my nature. He knows my need. What a wonderful word, that word fellowship it is. Isn't it amazing that, that God has communion and fellowship with us simply because we've entered into such a relationship? And what's it led to? A deeper fellowship, a deeper communion, so we can walk with God, so we can do the will of God, so we can work for God, so we can worship Him. The knowledge of God not must only be the greatest priority in the Christian life and the greatest progress in the Christian life, but the knowledge of God must be the greatest process in the Christian life. See, let me explain. Increasing in the knowledge of God doesn't happen automatically. It's not about a vacuum. It just doesn't happen because we're zapped with something. When we pray, Lord, help me to know thee, help me to increase in the knowledge of thee, then this is what we're praying for. Now listen to me carefully, because this is really, I suppose, in a sense, the, the heart of the message as we conclude. This is what's involved. Having an affection for the Lord. Remember what Matthew uh, chapter 22 verse 37 to 40 actually says. It says this. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And you see, love to God is necessary for that relationship to be strong and healthy and to grow and to flourish. And therefore, love is necessary to having a knowledge of God. Once we grasp, he loves me. Isn't that what Paul said? Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Taken up with God's love, everlasting, freely, sacrificially, personally, continually. And his love remembers a holy love. But his people are to love him too. In return. It's a two-way street. And even though we love him fickly and love him feebly. Remember Peter says, when asked, lovest thou me more than these? He replied three times, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he used a different word than the word agape. He, he, he used the, the word for brotherly love. He knew that he could not love God the way God loved him. But he did love the Lord in truth. And such love is vital. Because there's no true knowledge without love being at the heart of it. A true fellowship, a true communion arises out of love. And that love, of course, must be marked by genuineness and marked by sincerity. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, he, he tells us this. He says, and that ye put 
on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speaking every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. He went on to say there in Ephesians um, 6 uh, and verse 24, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Not hypocritically. Not pretending. Not fooling yourself or trying to fool the Lord. You'll never do it perfectly. But you do it with a wholehearted, genuine, sincere, warm, constant love. Lovest thou me? He would ask. And he would ask us that today. More than these, all that we're involved in. Do we love the Lord more than anything else in the world? So that the Lord's at the center. There has to be a, a, an affection for the Lord. But it's also not only having affection for the Lord, it's paying attention to the Lord. See, the Lord speaks to us out of his word. I, I love the theme, God has spoken. And when I read the Bible, I remember that God is speaking to me out of the scriptures. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. How can we do that? What rule has God given so that we may glorify and enjoy him forever? And the answer is, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament is the only rule whereby we may um, glorify and, and enjoy him forever. And what do the scriptures principally teach? Which is the third question of the catechism. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of him. And you see, if we read the scriptures with the thought, every day, God is speaking to me. Then what an impact that that would have as he speaks to us out of his word. His word is God-breathed. I believe in the doctrine of inspiration, plenary and verbal. It's word-for-word word inspiration. I, I believe that what we read um, that has come out of the mouth of God, the very breath of God, uh, uh, forms what we would really call the oracles of God. First Peter 4 and verse 11 says this, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Here we're praying to increase in the knowledge of God. And what does that mean? It, it, it prays. It means praying that we'll be more attentive. We will sense that he is speaking out of his book. And, and we look upon his book as his instruction manual. Young people, that's what the Bible is. Be instructed before leaving earth. Five little letters. B-I-B-L-E. Be instructed before leaving earth. And he's instructing us about himself that we might have an experimental knowledge of him. And that involves time and study. That involves prayer. That, that, that involves saying, Lord, speak to me. That involves having a spirit of discernment. You see, it's impossible to claim I have a knowledge of God initially, and, and I'm increasing in the knowledge of God, if I don't have an affection for him, if I don't love him. And certainly if I'm not paying attention to his word. Isn't this what he said in the Gospel of John? In John uh, 14, in verse 24, he, 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 he tells us here, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, we will come unto him, and they abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's which sent me. Do you see the connection? And I'll tell you something else, it must be seen in our approach to the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 17 says, The righteous cry, and the Lord heardeth. Now, now think of this. Isn't this amazing? 
individual Christians, you and me, as believers, true followers of the Lord, those in Christ, we pray, we cry out, and the Lord hears. This true and living God. Isn't it wonderful that we're given the right and the ground of the blood to come into the Lord's presence? The presence of the triune God, the, the God who is thrice holy, the, the God before whom we should fear and tremble. You think of a king on a throne, and he's got a subject and he wants to come and ask him something. How does he come? He just doesn't put his hands in his pockets and wander in and say, Well, your majesty, what about ye? I would like some. No, no, he doesn't come like that. Boys and girls, young people, he comes humbly. He comes in by way of an announcement. He, he, he comes in acknowledging the greatness of his majesty. And that's the mindset. And you see, the ear of God is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Proverbs 15, verse 28. And as the Lord Jesus Christ set us a wonderful example during his lifetime of addressing his heavenly father in prayer. We, we follow his example. We, we follow in his steps. He had special times and seasons for her. He had set times for prayer. And you see, part of the knowledge of God is the privilege of addressing God in prayer. God speaks to us out of the book. And then we speak to God in prayer. It's a two-sided relationship that's active. James 4 says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. It arises out of the fact that we're in Christ. We have no power to redeem ourselves. We, we have no power to reconcile ourselves to God. We have no power to remit our sins. We have no power in ourselves to reach out to him. We do in the basis of the blood sacrifice. We do in the basis of grace. But we come focused on fellowship and communion. And it's a privilege to draw near. And we've got the promise. Draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. It's not that he'll send us away. It's not that he'll stop us coming. It's not that he will insult us. Because his great heart of love for us, his ears are open to hear our cry. The righteous cry. And the Lord heareth. Not only in having an approach to the Lord. But let me tell you this as we close. It's seen in our adoration of God. You see, if we were to take the word God, and go into the doctrine of God, we would begin then to think about his natural attributes and his moral attributes. And we would see this God of who he is and what he's like and what he's doing. And as I've already pointed out to you before, this is the greatest knowledge in the world. It's according to this revelation of himself that he's made in the scriptures. To have a heart that loves God. To have ears that hear God. To have a mouth that speaks for God. And a hand that serves God. Out of delight to do as well. Because we're filled with a sense of how worthy he is. Um, Thou art worthy. We thought about this last Sunday as we closed the communion service. Having a deep adoration for God. God created me. I'm in his image. God loves me. Here's the ways. God has redeemed me by the precious blood. That's a wonderful thing. God has called me to himself. I'm his. I'm his child. Time and eternity. God is with me. And oh, that we should be filled with a sense of adoration. Now, as I have said to you, 
Here's the process. It's having an affection for the Lord. It's paying attention to the Lord. It's seeing our approach to the Lord as an amazing, wonderful thing and possessing an adoration for him. That's how we can increase our knowledge of him. The Lord bless you this morning. Thank you for listening. Thank you for coming. And I pray the Lord will take these few thoughts as we open up this prayer and help us as we come to understand what a wonderful thing it is.